On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, hoss, we roll along. Hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for telling friends that you tune into and hang out in the other side of Texas. We are taking up a week of pre-recorded shows with new content as well as interviews that have gotten a lot of feedback from listeners and we hope that you'll enjoy coming up our fourth edition of Texas Legislature 101 with Dr. Branding Roddinghouse as we talk about the Texas House of Representatives and the historical and current context for the lower house, as it were. We are currently, the Leesons are currently, in Lake City or near Lake City, Colorado, and Joining me, just so that I have proof that I'm married to such a beauty queen, is Charity Joanne Leeson. How are you doing, Mrs. Leeson? Hi. Hi, guys. Um, so, by this time, when listeners hear this, we'll be five days in mm -hmm. to no electricity <laughs> in a cabin that just has gas lighting and a propane refrigerator, how do you think we'll be doing? And and four children, also four children yeah, with no yeah, electronics. Four. None of that. Yeah, it'll be awesome. We'll be all unwound. The kids will be making chipmunk traps, and I don't know. What did they do last year? We're going to have a tent, tent and then we're yes. going to do the chipmunk traps. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Jack and Sam have spoken very eloquently to that endeavor. Did they? <laughs> yeah, earlier. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me, Charity, why do we do this again? What, what is this uh, going out of town? What What's the big focus here? What's the goal? Roles, goals, and expectations mm -hmm. on a vacation like this. I don't know what you mean. We're, we're going to hang out as a family, get to come back together after a busy school year and no distractions and hang out with all of our favorite people. So it sounds like good roles and goals sure. and expectations. Yes. Expectation is you're cooking every night. Expectation is you're cooking every night. Uh-huh. And... Um, with... With uh, some brown trout that I catch. The brown trout you'll be catching. And Grace and I volunteer to read lots of books in the hammock. Okay. All right. So you and I have been doing this now for almost 17 years. Mm -hmm. That is that is true. How are you feeling? I feel great. Best decision of my life. <laughs> you said that with dishonest eyes. They can't see your eyes. <laughs> nope. It's been great. All right. Well, looking forward to another Oleo trip, and uh, we hope that you're looking forward to the program ahead. Love you, Joe girl. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. Brandon Roddinghouse, and then jump over to Lyle Larson, state representative out of San Antonio. Is going to talk about water, and then we'll have Travis, Travis Clardy, proud uh, West Texas native 
And some think that he could be the next Speaker of the House. And speaking of the House, again, Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse coming up here when we will talk about the Texas House of Representatives. In our fourth part of this Texas Legislature 101 series with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, University of Houston, we want to talk about the Texas House of Representatives, a body that has 150 members, a body that is led by one member from the body itself, and a body that Dr. Roddinghouse knows a lot about. Uh, give us a little overview. Just give us four. Let's start with four things that people need to know about the Texas House, just so far as structure, and then we can get into the dynamics of it. Yeah. Well, the first is that um, the number of people obviously creates um, um, a, a difficulty in terms of getting everybody on the same page. So the 150 members it can be an unruly bunch. Some people have referred to this as a circus. Some people have said that it's like the big top, um, but no matter how you cut it, there's a lot of individuals with a lot of opinions about what to do. So how to organize that. So what they do um, is effectively create a party structure and then a kind of top-down structure from the Speaker of the House to organize the individual efforts. Now, this is going to create some friction because if you are in a position where you have to say that a certain person will be on a certain committee, a certain bill will or will not be um, uh, you know, passed uh, or, or would the right committee that you'd like, um, those kinds of things make enemies very quickly. And so leaders in the House have to balance the needs of the rest of the, of the coalition. Um, one of the things that um, some of the more successful uh, of the speakers have done has been to essentially try to allow for the members to have an easier time representing their district. This is one of the things I, I like Pete Laney for, and I know you're a big Pete Laney fan. Um, Pete Laney once said that the job of the speaker was to um, make each member uh, make each member's life easier by uh, letting them represent their district better. So the goal was basically to create legislation which would um, be appeasing to most people, um, even if it was something that was contentious. Um, so most speakers who have gone in that route have been successful. Those who have gone the more autocratic route have tended to have pretty short uh, health, uh, pretty short um, lives in terms of their their political careers. Yeah. So the speaker elected by the House itself, and. I assume from the very beginning, the speaker's been elected that way, Dr. Roddinghouse? Yeah, that's correct. Um, they've always been chosen from the chamber. Um, the ways in which they've done it has been slightly different. Um, you know, now we've debated, the Republicans are debating about whether or not they would have an internal vote before they had an external vote, right? Um, and there is a controversy politically about that, but also just functionally about whether or not if you agree to vote for somebody before the floor votes in the way that's prescribed by the rules, if that's considered a kind of legislative bribe, um, these legal questions are going to have to get kind of teased out um, or not, depending on how things go. But um, the process then hasn't always been the same, but the, um, the generally speaking, that structure has been the same. Which causes some controversy. And today there's controversy about why the speaker... And I'm going to ask a sub-question here. I'm assuming around the 1940, like in the last uh, the last part we did, we talked about the emergence of Coach Stevenson and uh, Alan Shivers at the lieutenant governor and the Senate side. 
but I assume that the House got more organized around that time as well. Uh, the yeah. question today is, why is the Speaker of the House so powerful, and yet he's not been elected by citizens of Texas, only yeah. members of the House? I, mean, I should say they, yeah, not think, just he. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the second question first, and that is, you know, why is it the case that we don't elect the Speaker kind of nationwide or statewide? Um, part of it is because the goal of leadership was to um, allow for that person to lead just in the chamber. Uh, we didn't see a speaker who had overtly party-connected political goals until, you know, the 1980s, 1990s, and really through kind of Tom Craddock, like I had mentioned in our last session. So um, that's really the point where the party and the politics begin to kind of link together. Um, that's not to say that ideology didn't matter for a lot of these uh, speakers, because it did, and that was something that became more common in the progressive era. So at that point, people, speakers became more kind of appreciated or more supported because of their ideological position. But it wasn't so much the case that, like, you would link external party effects to internal legislative party control until 1980s, 1990s. So um, it's a really good question. Um, ultimately, the, um, you know, that would be something, frankly, would be consistent with the way the Constitution was written to sort of diversify the sources of authority and power across the state, but that's not the way that um, it was organized. Um, on the second question about, or on the first question, rather, about um, how this kind of centralization came about, um, the most consequential speaker in history was probably Coke Stevenson, who they called Calculating Coke. Uh, he served as speaker in, from 1933 to 1937. He was the first speaker to be reelected to the speakership. This is important not only because it was the first time it happened, but also because it showed that he understood how to organize the legislature in a way that benefited his particular ideology. So like I said, he was... Um, he was a redeemer Democrat, so he was, he was conservative all the way through his entire political career. Um, his second term, in fact, became a kind of proxy battle for control of the Democratic Party. This was a point in time where the New Deal was coming into effect. A lot of the conservative Democrats were very uncomfortable with Franklin Roosevelt's approach to kind of this big centralized government that was spending a lot of money, right? That's the two things that, you know, conservatives don't like. Now, Republicans. Back then, it was the conservative Democrats, what we called the Texas regulars. Um, that, at that point, the party, the Democratic Party was still pretty much unified, but Stevenson represented a kind of conservative wing of the party that was more cautious in approaching. Um, um, I don't know why they called him calculating coke exactly. I think it was in part because um, the stories that were told about him um, of, of, of sort of imply that he had a kind of very calm demeanor and um, would oftentimes use his pipe as a gavel instead of <laughs> the gavel. So Ben Barnes reports that he would basically wrap his pipe on the dais instead of the gavel, and he said that that was more effective at getting people's attention than the gavel. So he commanded the kind of um, uh, the, the will of the chamber in a way that probably no speaker had until that point, and maybe even since then. Um, his uh, goals were to create a kind of modern Texas, especially through um, modern budgeting process. I mean, he was very cautious in terms of how he wanted to spend money. He was, um, like I said earlier, he was opposed to rationing. Um, he was also opposed to sales and tax increases to pay for programs. Or um, there's one particular moment where he, um, there was an imbalance in pension checks, and the governor asked him to help 
to move some money that was set aside for road construction into paying for the pensions. And um, and Stevenson said, no, he wouldn't do that. So it was a very kind of fixed, uh, very kind of narrow um, vision in terms of spending. But he really kind of represented that strong speaker that we know of today. Hmm. So the Gib Lewis's, the Laney's, the Strauss's all have a volume of uh, Coke Stevenson on their Yes, exactly. Yeah. They uh, should, um, because, yeah, he was, he was central to the modern speakership. So with was Laney in some ways a correction that because I don't see him as a party outcome sort of speaker I see him as yeah. trying to try I'm sure that there are horror stories out there about Laney's people coming after you but uh, I hadn't mm-hmm. heard those before uh would his speakership and I believe Lewis served five terms preceding mm-hmm. Pete Laney right and then mm-hmm. Okay, and then you had Craddock, and then five with uh, with Strauss. Uh, was Laney's speakership? How did that guide the legislature as a whole at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, I mean, Laney definitely was um, a kind of speaker who felt like um, that you would have to kind of balance the needs of the chamber with the political outcomes that they would otherwise engage in. So um, it was definitely the case that. Um, speakers tend to be a, a product of their era. So he was somebody who served in the legislature at a time where there was a serious transition between the uh, parties, right? So um, until, you know, 2000 and, uh, 2001, there was basically a split, right? And uh, up after the redistricting and after the elections that resulted from that, um, there was a kind of change and you saw Republicans take control. So Laney was a kind of last um, in that um, moment of um, kind of compromise, like pure compromise. Um, he also is distinguished because he, unlike several of his predecessors, didn't end up in serious legal trouble <laughs> or having to resign because um, there was some major controversy. Um, Gib Lewis had ethics troubles um, for which he was indicted. Um, uh, Billy Clayton uh, was also indicted, eventually acquitted um, of uh, similar bribery um, scandals. He was caught um, taking a bribe, uh, which he said was um, an accident or which he was going to uh, take the money and give it back later um, because it would be embarrassing to turn them down <laughs> at that moment. Um, Gus Mutcher before that, a couple of um, speakers before that, was, of course, wrapped up in the Sharpstown scandal, was indicted, and eventually um, he was acquitted. But um, there's a long history of speakers using power and uh, influence but then paying the price for it. Um, Pete Laney was one of the few that didn't, that really was able to kind of guide the chamber in a way that um, probably needed to. Um, no matter how you think about it politically, right, whether you're Republican or Democrat, like the, the goal of the speaker um, is generally speaking to execute the will of the, of, of the House. And that's something that Laney did in a time where that wasn't so easy to figure out, right? You had a real contention, uh, you know, conservative Republicans coming in, you had conservative Democrats and you had liberal Democrats trying to figure out what the will of the House was at that point in time was not easy. Yeah. And- for reference, that's essentially the 1990s and a big upheaval in Texas, the emergence of George W. Bush and uh, several different factors. But I think pragmatism, even though I think Laney would have been knowing him personally, he would have been pragmatic in the role. But the context, certainly you're right, product of his time, uh, he really didn't have any other decision uh, than to yeah. be pragmatic at that stage. Um, yeah. Uh, 
and one of the things he did too that was really um, important was that you know he developed a kind of series of rules that gave the House a kind of breathing room in terms of passing legislation. So we look at this 140-day legislative process as being a kind of whirlwind, right? I mean, it really flies by. Well, before Laney, um, the, really the rules didn't allow for there enough time to really process and understand the legislation that was being put through. If any of for 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 those people who haven't paid attention to the legislature, like you can go to the legislature online and you can just kind of go and see how many bills are filed. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of bills filed. Well, getting through all of these and making sure they all get their due is a really complicated thing, and it gets even more complicated when you're under time pressure. So one of the things Laney did was essentially to kind of develop these series of stopgap um, um, kind of hurdles that would allow for a kind of pausing point where they, the goal was to basically stop and think, right? Um, I think it was actually uh, Sam uh, Rayburn who, when he was a member of the Texas House and Speaker of the Texas House, said the smartest thing a legislature can do is to ask the question or to say the statement, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> like, let's stop and think about what we're doing before we do it. And Laney established rules that let that happen. Um, one of the things that uh, Sam Rayburn actually, um, before we move on to a different point if you want, um, is that he, he said in his first term, his first session as speaker, he said that he was able to, quote, muddle through by God, by desperation, and by ignorance. Um, that kind of classified the way that speakers worked back in the day. But um, now, thanks in large part to the structure that was developed um, in the 1970s, 1980s, and then kind of solidified through Pete Laney, was that it's much more formulaic, and that is to the benefit of the House. And that was firsthand, I've heard. Laney developed that calendar within that 140-day calendar because he was tired of Bullock dragging things on and driving the process. He just wanted. I love it. I, love I think it. I've heard it referred to as he wanted to turn Bullock's altometer upside down. I love it. No, yeah, I've seen that too. This is basically Pete Laney forever trolling Bob Bullock, right? Like yeah. you were forever and always until they change these rules, right? It will be the House that will be able to set the tone. Um, like I said, that's really been that way since the 1920s, 1930s, when they start to really establish rules in the House that give them that centralized clarity that they don't get in the Senate until 1950s or so. Yeah. Okay. Close us out with a couple of uh, more things we need to know about the lower chamber, as it were. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I think um, the development over time um, has... I think lags slightly behind the U.S. Congress. That's something that um, uh, U.S. the U.S. Congress didn't really kind of materialize into a strong centralized speakership until the turn of the century, turn of the last century. Texas wasn't that far behind, but they took from that the um, kind of benefit that they could be able to make those, um, you know, use that structure to be able to pass things that the party and that the members cared about, and that's a big, big factor here. Um, um, I, that's, that's one of the biggest things. Um, um, the uh, legislature gets bad rap. I mean, they uh, have been pilloried in so many different ways. Um, one of my favorite um, uh, examples was from um, a long ago. This is from um, from the Frederick Law Olmsted, who was famous for designing 
Central Park and for like the Golden Gate Park around the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a great book that everybody should read. It's called A Journey Through Texas. It's just before the Civil War, 1857. Basically, it's a story of him, you know, kind of crisscrossing Texas with some traders who were trading various things. Um, and he said the following. He said, we visited several times the Texas legislature in session and have seldom been more impressed with respect for the workings of democratic institutions. But then he goes on to say, one gentleman, a legislator, in a state of intoxication, attempts to address the House. (laughs) And he was quietly persuaded to retire. So there's always been this kind of raucousness. Um, Former legislator Bob Eckhart from Houston remarked that this example in Austin was built for giants, but inhabited by pygmies. And so they get a lot of bad flack, but they do a lot of good too. And so we can't forget that, but I love to celebrate the quirkiness of the, of, of, of the chamber. The rambunctiousness of it. So I'd be, I need to ask you here, uh, what do you expect? I don't want you to pick a person mm-hmm. out of the house, but of course there's an open race for the Texas house speaker that'll begin to grab a lot of headlines after the elections in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think from what wing of the house or what point on the spectrum do you think the next speaker will come a conservative Republican, a super conservative Republican, a moderate, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. what what faction of the Republican party will the speaker come out of? You know, um, so the, the literature on the subject, which looks at state legislatures all across the country for the past, you know, 20 or so years suggests that, in almost every instance, the leadership in the lower chamber is chosen from the moderate element of the party. So if history is a guide and if this sort of um, pattern persists, then the Speaker of Texas, of Texas House will be somebody who's more moderate. The reason is because their job is to um, kind of make sure that the number two, two things, number one, the will of the chamber is met, whatever that may be. Number two, to protect the members having to take tough positions and have to vote on things they don't want to vote on. So part of the reason that Strauss was able to survive for so long was because, at least in my opinion, that like he was able to make sure that um, the kind of more moderate wing of the Republican Party didn't have to take tough positions and things that maybe they didn't want to. Say, for instance, bathroom bill, right? You bottle it up in committee, which means that then it doesn't have to be a, an issue, you know, for you going back to your moderate district. Um, that example repeats itself, you know, a hundred times every session. Um, so the goal for the speaker then is to basically present themselves in that more kind of moderate, um, uh, that more moderate um, area. Um, you also have to be a speaker, somebody who can work with both sides, right? You need to be able to have some kind of a, um, a, an understanding of what the opposition party is up to, what they're thinking, to be able to make sure you can get what you want passed. So usually moderates are in a better position to be able to communicate those kinds of visions. Yeah, I think So if that's that, the case, yeah, okay. Well, uh, one point that it drives me crazy. Some people who scantily pay attention to state politics will say, "Why is excuse me? Why is that Joe Strauss so moderate?" And they don't understand that it is the will of the House, and that by November, fifty-five to sixty of that hundred and fifty-member body are going to be Democrats, and a majority vote is seventy-six. So yeah. you know you got to get twenty-six, thirty more people. And you've got yeah. a majority in the House, right? That makes yeah. for a moderate. That's right. Yeah, and here's the other thing that speakers know, and that is that the body can change the rules as they wish. There have been points in time where the power of the speaker has been enhanced or decreased based upon being treated 
mostly the members of the minority party. So, yeah, you're right. If all of the Democrats partner up with you know, some of the more moderate Republicans, they can quell the power of a more conservative speaker. Or if the conservatives are looking for an alternative and the Democrats agree for different reasons, then they can reduce the power of the speaker to, say, appoint people to certain committees um, or to have uh, the ability to reference uh, legislation to specific committees. So they can alter the rules to their advantage. So no speaker wants to be in a position where they're pushing too far. The ultimate sort of end to a speaker is that you're removed from power. That's what happened to Tom Craddock, right? The reason Joe Strauss is speaker is because so many people were unhappy with the way that Craddock was running the House that, not just from an ideological perspective, but also from a technical perspective, that they end up um, getting together and finding an alternative in Joe Strauss, who at the time was not a well-known member. I mean, he wasn't like a superstar. He was a kind of backbencher in a way, um, respected, but not well-known. And so most speakers understand that their shelf life can be pretty limited if they run afoul of too many of the members. Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, that's our fourth part. His contact information, by the way, we'll put up on the website with this series get into the fifth part next coming up we'll talk about the house versus the senate two two chambers at war or maybe something a lot less dramatic thank you dr Roddinghouse. hey my pleasure somebody i don't have on the show often enough is a state representative out of San Antonio fastest growing city in Texas he is Lyle Larson and uh Representative Larson, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks, Jay. Uh, let's talk about water. What to? Hold on. When, I can do that. I can do that. When you aren't drinking water and you're drinking a beverage of choice, what's your favorite beer? I like uh, Coors Light or Michelob Ultra. Okay. Ultra, huh? They keep on That's asking me. Light. To, yeah. I know my friends, uh, some of them drink it with me and some uh, give me a hard time about it. Yeah. Well, you can always show them your physique. Like, you could probably take <laughs> a lot of those guys in an arm wrestling contest, right? Like, you and well, Fort Price, I'd put my money on you. Well, I appreciate that. Maybe not a lot of Coors. I drink Coors Light and pretty much anything cold and wet. I'll uh, partake in it. I would take you... Against Ken King, unless Ken King had had a lot of uh, Coors Light, then then I may go with Ken on that deal. He can he can definitely get a little on. <laughs> uh, I've been around him in that condition. Hey, so you've been up in uh, our parts of the plains. I want to say our parts of the woods, but they aren't woods. Um, tell me what you've looked at this past week in the Panhandle and what you've learned. Well, we had a committee hearing uh, there. Uh, and uh, it was basically looking at a, a lot of the different uh, case law cases that have come up over the last couple of years regarding uh, ownership of the water, uh, working with groundwater districts. Also, we talked extensively about desalination, and there's a lot of water. There's a sea of water in the Dockham. Uh, some of it is potable well, now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's for- the Dockham? The Dockham is an aquifer that uh, that lays next to and over or under the, uh, the Ogallala. So they're, okay. they're right there together. I just have to keep everybody on the same page here, Lyle. I mean, you guys really okay. get going, and i got to pause every one. Go ahead. So there's a, there's a, a, brackish, uh, a brackish aquifer out there that has a lot of water. The technology is evolving 
real quickly, uh, and and a lot of people across the state are using brackish water as their primary drinking source. We've got five desal plants uh, between McAllen and Brownsville, and uh, that's quickly becoming their primary source of water. We've got uh, City of San Antonio just finished the first phase of their desalination plant, and uh, they're producing about 11 million gallons a day. El Paso has about 27 million gallons, and you're looking 100 years from now, there's going to be a lot of compression on the uh, aquifers we've got in the state with the growth that we're anticipating. And looking at the drought of 2011, we lost about 84 million acre-feet of, of water, both ground and surface water, in that one-year drought. And looking at tree ring analysis and uh, in history over the last five centuries, We'll have that same five- to seven-year drought sometime in the balance of this century, and we're ill-prepared for it, uh, to be candid with you, uh, based on the volumes of water. Saying that, we, we visited with a number of groundwater districts, uh, Cremwald, uh, the uh, Canadian River Water Authority that provides uh, most of the water for Amarillo and, and Lubbock. Uh, we met with those folks as well, and glad to see Lake Merritt up to 50%. Mm-hmm. Or forty percent of the capacity, uh, but they're losing uh, they're losing sixty percent of their daily yield to evaporation there, and so it's not a long-term solution. Is we've got to get real innovative, bring new water to bear, and uh, we've got to uh, take a different approach if we're going to sustain our economic growth uh, and have water that's uh, available for for folks in a hundred years. Representative Lyle Larson, text in. And I did some uh, legwork while you were talking there. Still listening to what you were saying. But uh, what in the world is an acre foot? It's a unit of volume equal to the volume of a sheet of water, one acre in area, and one foot in depth. So, just well, 325,000 gallons. Wow. Or yeah, another so way of saying. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the vernacular they, uh, the people in the water world use. And. If you look at the Ogallala, which is the primary aquifer uh, between Lubbock uh, going all the way up into uh, to South Dakota, there's uh, we're concerned about it because it's depleting right now. Uh, most of the strategies deployed by the groundwater districts up in that area, the High Plains, the North Plains, the Panhandle, Hemp Hill, South Plains, all of those groundwater districts are uh, to mine it down to about 50%. Over the next 50 years, it's uh, the only large aquifer we've got in the state where we're mining it and we're depleting it uh, quicker than it's recharging. And so, again, we've got to look at strategies uh, that uh, we don't accept that as, as the conclusion. We need to try to find water to supplant the water that they're using, and that could be brackish water. We could do transport projects. Somewhere, somewhere in the in the in the future, where we move water into the Panhandle and we use that water, or we inject it into the Ogallala, uh, it's very costly. But uh, again, is it? Uh, I think it's incumbent upon leaders today and people that are responsible for farming that area that we work at uh, solutions of conserving water and having that water available in a hundred or two years, so we can. Their great great grandkids continue to farm that area. If we continue to focus on the approaches we got now, there's going to be very little water to irrigate property, and it's all going to be under dry land, uh, which has significantly less yield. Uh, and it, it provide it, it presents a problem for 
the population growth too. You like to have your food stock in close proximity to your population centers. So there, it, the panhandle is a, a, a viable part or, or probably the most viable ag part of our economy and uh, we need to protect it today, tomorrow and and in the next hundred years. So we saw a lot of innovative strategies by the groundwater districts. Uh, Ten years ago, the water they're using for corn and cotton, they're using anywhere between 40 and 60 percent less on the on, on the drip irrigation, the uh, uh, the uh, pivot irrigation, a lot of the probes that they use in the ground to look at uh, look at moisture content. Uh, the, the folks are doing some very innovative things, and that stuff's being transferred across the state uh, with the research that they're doing up in your part of the world. So, Lyle Larson, tell me this. How, how much was the desalinization, I assume it's just in the first couple of phases in San Antonio, but how much has the city spent on that? You know, they, they, the, the plan itself in the $300 million range, uh, but on the, the, the variable side of it, on the cost per unit, uh, they're a little higher than most of the other communities across the, the state that have, have deployed it. Uh, they're looking a little bit over uh, $3 or $3.50 per thousand gallons. Now, the people in the valley, they're producing water that has similar uh, salinity in it, anywhere between 1,700 and 2,500 parts per million, and they're treating that water uh, between a dollar and $2.20. And so. And you think about the, uh, how does that affect the average homeowner? Well, the average uh, household in the state of Texas uses about 7,000 gallons of water a, a month. And so if it's at $2, you're talking about a, a $14 uh, cost for providing that water from the brackish columns uh, outside of the cost of, of bringing it in into the system. They'd mm-hmm. have to import it in through pipelines. but. The cost is falling significantly the way we've seen the technology uh, evolve, uh, both in how they filter the water they, and then uh, ultimately through the membranes, the reverse osmosis membranes. Uh, and and that's, that's the most costly part of it is, is having the energy uh, to push the water through those membranes that take the salt out of it. Uh, that technology, both in membranes and the softening through filtration, it's fallen 30% over the last five years, and I think we'll continue to optimize uh, the processes they use to uh, to clean this water up. And that's why I think in the foreseeable future, you know, the Dockham is going to be a, a very viable uh, resource for the people in West Texas uh, to use uh, to to augment and supplant uh, the water that uh, we're using the Ogallala. And Water Development Board is doing a study in conjunction with the High Plains uh, Groundwater District, they're providing a lot of the information to identify areas of that aquifer that we could, where you could potentially put a, a large-scale desal plant uh, and then it would be sustainable for 50 years. So we're looking for the highly productive uh, zones in that aquifer, identify them, and then work with the, the folks that are going to have to access that water uh, in you know, the near or the, uh, the distant future. So, a couple more questions, if you have time, Representative sure. Ron Larson here on other side of Texas. I, I, I just got done with a segment in which I said long-term political thinking more and more in Texas, and then the legislature seems to be the week after next. 
But here it seems to me that you're taking up a plan that needs to be followed through for the better part of the next 75 years. How did you get onto this water thing, Representative? And is it is it wrong for me to say that this has got to be a 50-year plan? It just in in terms of coordinating, not water security, but just putting in the infrastructure. It is a long-term solution, and unfortunately, most political animals look through the next election cycle, and they're not looking at uh, the, the, the long-term need. But why do you? Uh, for, you know, it was something that I've, I've been involved in. I was on the city council and commissioner's court uh, in San Antonio, and we were uh, we were woefully short in, in our water resources, and so we started exploring all of the options uh, of transporting water in, uh, the conservation, uh, building the desal plants, storing water, uh, the, uh, the winter allotment of the Edwards into an aquifer so we could we could hold it. Uh, you know, and they're on the cutting edge now, so it was by necessity. And I, I can tell you that you look at the the history of the world. You know, the Romans understood it. They built aqueduct systems and conveyance systems of moving water from the rural area into the urban areas and some of those aqueducts and remnants of it exist uh, all over the world. They understood the importance of water, and that is still the, the same situation we're in today. You can modernize everything, but you have to have water. And water is the biggest impediment we've got for sustainability in our economy in the state of Texas. There's a lot of states around us, Louisiana in particular, and uh, states to the east of them that have an abundance of water because they've got water coming through uh, the Midwest through the Mississippi and, and other rivers, we don't have that luxury. And uh, so the scarcity will, will change the architecture on how we manage water. It did in Arizona when they had a nine-year drought. It's happening west, the seven states west of us. Uh, uh, they're, they're in a significant drought as well as the panhandle. Uh, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, the folks uh, that are in elected office usually wait it's too late. They did in Arizona. They did in Australia when they had a 10-year drought, and it just cost you uh, significantly more money to pay for projects when you're in a drought because the scarcity is already upon you. And so I'm screaming from the, 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 the loudest uh, hill and uh, in, in trying to get uh, people ex, uh, excited about building projects, but when they see reservoirs fill up and it rains uh, the psychology water, people in Texas go, well, we're good now, right? No, we're, we're, we have a significant shortage problem over the horizon. And look at that drought of 2011 where most of all the inventory, surface water inventory west of I-35 dried up, including Lake Thomas, Lake Spence, uh, Lake Meredith. And you put a five-year drought, uh, you know, four more years in that, and we've, we've already done the modeling on that. 70 of the 117 reservoirs in the state will be completely dry, and we'll see a dramatic decline in the Ogallala and all of the other aquifers we've got in the state. And we need to be building those projects now with the understanding that that is over the horizon, and we can't build it once the, the drought is already on us. So 40% of the state is in a, in a, a pretty severe drought right now. Your part of the state uh, is in is the severest part of it, also west of you. So you, you think about the water coming off of the mountains and the snowmelt and the Canadian River, 
uh, in the Rio Grande and then Colorado, all of those, they're going to be real short on water coming uh, this summer and this fall because the snowmelt, uh, the, the, the level of snowmelt didn't, didn't, and then you have a drought to compound it. So uh, people need to understand the importance like the people in the panhandle do uh, about water. Unfortunately, we just don't have folks, uh, you know, people who run for governor and lieutenant governor and a lot of seats, they're not talking about water in their campaign. They're talking about whatever the issue of the day is. Water should be discussed in every political forum in the state, and people need to understand uh, that if we, do, if we don't move quickly uh, to, to resolve uh, some of the anticipated uh, shortfalls, uh, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us a lot more money, and it's going to cost us tens of thousands of jobs because people aren't going to move their companies if we don't have adequate water supply. Uh, Representative Larson, yesterday I mentioned that a longtime congressman out of West Texas, George Mahon, had designs on putting a pipe. I mean, the guy was there 45 years, uh, chair of appropriations. His idea was to build a pipeline from the Mississippi to come up the Caprock. Now, I don't know what kind of pumps he had in mind to make that 3,000-foot elevation, at least at the Caprock level. Um, but it sounds to me, in listening to you, that brackish water is a much more viable alternative than hauling water in from Houston or, you know, when floods or from the Mississippi River. It is. You know, logistics, it's right there around you. And we're, you know, the Santa Rosa and the Dockham, all of the aquifers that are out in that area that people considered bad water uh, for, for decades, uh, that water now is going to be a viable resource for, for that part of the state. You know, the Gully's Ditch that uh, the people in 68 voted on, that was bringing 12 million acre feet of water uh, from the Mississippi all the way to the Panhandle. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a constitutional amendment. It failed. There's about five, they were 5,000 votes short. It was a clear day, and a lot of folks in the ag were on tractors, and there wasn't early voting back then, so missed that opportunity. But those large-scale conveyance projects uh, will happen, you know, maybe not in our lifetimes, but when we start running short, you're going to see uh, conveyance projects moving water from the Gulf of Mexico to the I-35 corridor, mm -hmm. and then some of the water resources being used there will continue to move west because we're going to start running short of it. Also, if you look at all the water that the oil field handles, uh, if we can create uh, some kind of uh, conduit uh, to where we can clean that water in lieu of injecting it down hole, and we get the EPA to agree to allow us to put it on food stock once it's gone through the proper uh, treatment process, that's going to be a, a, a source of water in the middle and Odessa area uh, coming up to, to Lubbock and the areas where we see a lot of oil and gas exploration. I can see that water being used in lieu of fresh water out of the Ogallala. Just we're going to recycle that water and put it, put it back on the crops. And, you know, there's some costs involved now with doing that, but as the costs fall and we see the Ogallala falling, uh, we're going to have to make some tough decisions uh, as state policymakers and, I think that uh, we need to be involved in that instead of just taking it hands off. And the state, for the most part, we don't get directly involved in a lot of the projects. We provide some financing. But I think the state, when we start running short, people are going to anticipate their state leaders, their state senator, or their state representatives, or the governor. Uh, if they want them to be uh, responsible for it. Right now, we sort of abdicated our role 
we put a we put a water plan together. We throw a little money at it, and we just hope that it happens. I think we need to be the driving force behind it, and okay. we shouldn't wait and, and until we're running short and then start the dialogue at that point. I mean, we need to be we need to be moving now, and you have there's a sense of urgency, my boys, because looking at the data that you know A and M and Tech and the folks at uh, NASA or NOAA are showing there could uh, there could be a significant drought right uh, right now uh, based on the, the El Nino pattern lifting and we had an unprecedented rainfall. Normally, when La Nina sets in behind, when you have that healthy of an El Nino weather pattern, you can have significant periods of dryness, and that's why you know I'm, I'm you can see it on the maps as they materialize on our droughts uh, that are that are forming. Uh, in the panhandle, and y'all have had the biggest problem for uh, for the last 140 days. But it, that same thing uh, is being replicated uh, along the I-35 corridor in Central Texas, along the border, all the way into the Rio Grande Valley. And if it persists, we've got a significant problem in three months. Hmm. Not three years or, or 30 years, but in three months. And so that's why there's a sense of urgency in my voice. Okay. So this is the last thing I'd be... I need to seize this moment while I've got you here. As I would qualify you as an urban representative. Is that unfair? You know, I, I grew up on a farm, and, uh, and we had 250 mother cows, 400 hogs. My dad was a large veterinarian, and we had a big, uh, a, a big agriculture operation. The city of San Antonio it came in and surrounded okay. us, and, and, so you and got, development you... took it. So I was an ag guy that that now is in an urban area. Okay, so. Whenever you talk about having a large, uh, greater dialogue, somebody with rural roots and an urban representative, uh, and you mentioned the Romans earlier, and carrying water in from rural to urban, I make the argument a lot to people that urban folks and rural folks, of course, I carry a program where we talk about rural issues most of the time. Right. Rural folks and urban folks have a mutual fate. And that plays out in healthcare access. That plays out in public education in a few different spheres, especially with agriculture and how you got those whitey tidies at that price and how you got that beef at that price. But when, where the conversation begins to fall apart, in my experience, Lyle Larson, is whenever you get into water, and we talk about gun grabbing a lot, but there become conversations about water grabbing. What do you say to rural people about this and about how to have a conversation statewide uh, when water might be carried in from the countryside to the cities? That is a, uh, a battle that's gone on you know, since the beginning of time. As the populations grow, they need more of the resource, and the folks uh, out in the rural areas, uh, they fight it. And so I think that that's where the state needs uh, to, to take more of a leadership role. These planning districts, we sort of balkanized our state, and we fight each other fiercely along these 16 regions, these artificial lines, and nobody's looking at the 50,000-foot level about how water is going to, going to be addressed, both in the rural and the urban areas. And, and, and unfortunately, uh, there's no referees. Uh, and... Uh, there are viable water markets that will uh, take place, uh, and the rural folks will have to make decisions on whether they want to continue to, uh, to provide uh, 
uh, food and fiber for uh, the uh, growing population or sell their water uh, to the growing cities. And uh, there's the water market, uh, they're going to come to a crossroads on whether they want to continue to do that. I think that if it's planned properly, uh, that the growth of the state shouldn't be to the detriment of the folks in the rural area. Because if we've got to go buy our beef from folks in other states and we've got to uh, import all of our uh, our vegetables because uh, we're taking all the water to ag season, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's going to cost you uh, a premium uh, to do that. And we've got, in the panhandle in particular, and in some areas in South Texas, uh, we've got uh, some of the healthiest agriculture in North America. We shouldn't jeopardize that uh, with our growth. That's why we look at alternative uh, approaches uh, to uh, dealing with water shortages, going into the brackish water, going into the saltwater desal, going into water-rich areas uh, in, in, in other states and, and conveying that, the, that water into the metroplex area and then having some of the water that may be available to them moving it over into the areas uh, that, uh, that are west of the metroplex area. So there's some, op- uh, there's some opportunities. Uh, I think we need to set all of this up on a grid like we do electricity. we got to figure out both the conveyance and the connectivity in water just like we have with electricity so the rural areas aren't left out because they don't have uh, the financial wherewithal to build these large-scale projects. If the state uh, is participating in it, uh, then the state can go in and start securing some of uh, some of the needs that the people in the rural areas can have. But I don't see uh, I see the fight that you're discussing about rural and urban. But I think we've got to be working uh, working together and not having uh, these these fights because it's counterproductive for our whole state as we develop it. Uh, if we're going to have areas there, uh, where land's going to be fallowed and not used in ag. Uh, and that water is being transported in, then we're losing, uh, or, or there's an erosion of uh, of the food and fiber that the population is going to need. He is Representative Lyle Larson, at Rep Lyle Larson, there on Twitter. Took you a little bit long, but we appreciate you making time. We, we like to talk water up here, bud. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it, uh, and I hope uh, hope y'all start getting some rain up there. Hey, we appreciate your thoughts. I uh, hope you come back soon. Thank you, Lyle Lars. Yep. And I don't like to get into national stuff because, as a recent Lubbock County judge race proved, we always try to extrapolate the national onto local politics. People say, well, all politics are local. I think that's less and less the case as we've gone into social media and we we see all these different perspectives and we try to bring them to bear locally. And that's why I don't, like I had a guy message me today and just said, look, I'm done with the apparatus of both parties in Texas because they, it's, it's just a warning. It's like the county never came in and graded the county road, the dirt road. Mm-hmm. And you're just stuck in the ruts. Just get really tired. It just becomes a very vapid argument whenever we begin to extrapolate national and local. And that's why I don't stick with it very often. But I do think it's important to look at national issues every once in a while and begin to take some perspective, some local perspective on national issues. But I refuse, I 100% absolutely refuse to let local or even state be driven by national. And everybody thinks, and I've said this before, 
go ask 10 people, what do you think about, let's talk about Stormy Daniels for just a minute. Oh, my gosh. I love this subject. Ask (laughs) 10 people about Stormy Daniels and what their thoughts are on it locally. And then ask them, wow, that was a very intriguing four minutes you just gave me nonstop on Stormy Daniels. Now, tell me how many senators are in the Texas Senate. And with eight of those people, crickets. And what kills me about all this is that that Senate has exponentially more impact on your day-to-day life than does Stormy Daniels or her lawyer or whatever happened when she says Donald Trump was perched on the bed as she came out of the bathroom. So, with that said, I looked at a few stories, and there are several out there, but the one that is getting the most blaze, no pun intended, is what's gone on with Tommy Lauren. Tommy Lauren is a political commentator, and she is she was with the blaze. She does stuff with Fox News now as a contributor, and the thing with Tommy Lauren is that she likes to gaslight. She likes to throw out the red meat, and she says things like this. It's time for final thoughts, and it seems only fitting to take a look back at 2017 and all we've accomplished. Well, in 2017, Donald J. Trump became the 45th president of the United States, which also means in 2017 a majority of Democrats turned into alt-left radical psychos, but we'll get back to them later. In less than a year, Donald Trump has signed 96 laws. Now, the anti-Trump crowd will try to diminish that achievement because the only laws they seem to care about are the ones that force you to buy health insurance or strip your Second Amendment rights. Well, President Trump has done the opposite. In fact, according to an analysis by NPR, 16 of those 96 laws repeal rules and regulations saddled on us by our favorite Democrats. But speaking of getting rid of stupid rules, this president also pulled the U.S. of the Paris Climate Accord, a U.N.-pushed resolution that does very little to help the actual environment, but would have crushed American jobs and energy production. But that's not the only message our president delivered to the U.N. President Trump also recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, something his three predecessors promised but were too spineless to accomplish. So let's see, what else? Hmm. Under this president, 80% of Americans will get a tax break. The individual mandate has been nixed, and Anwar is now open for some good old American energy production. This president also nominated a constitution. Okay, so here's the deal. Go out, trigger people, gaslight them, get them fired up, and that's Tommy Lauren's stick. And I get it. I, I hear a lot of that locally and regionally. It's... It's good for business to put out there that, you know, liberals this, liberal that. And she does a fine job of it. As a professional, she's really found her niche. Now, she's in Minneapolis on Sunday. She's with her parents having brunch. She's called over to a table where she gets into an eh, some conflict with the table. Over politics? Yes. She's in Minneapolis, the Berkeley of the North. And she gets in this conversation. I'm not sure exactly what's said, but somebody throws a glass of water at her. And now Tommy Lauren is somebody who has uh, been attacked physically, is uh, how some like Sean Hannity describe that. Now, that's a small price to pay. At the end of the day, she's getting paid. 
like I would maybe she paid somebody to do this yeah. because it went viral. It just consumed some news cycle on the second page in a lot of places wow. on the internet. Another one went crazy on social media. Donald Trump tweets yesterday. Everybody's with Tommy Lauren, a truly outstanding and respected young woman. And so I am in no way saying go throw glasses of water with people that you disagree. But I do remember a time in this Hamilton and Burr went out to the pasture and dueled over political differences. But, you know, we're all snowflakes now. So I, kinda, I, I just want to put this out there. I kind of like Tommy Lahren. Okay. Well, that's, I, I'll tell, let me tell I kind of dig what she, how she established She's it. definitely made well for herself. Yeah. In the billfold. No and doubt about smart. it. she's smart. She's a smart girl. She is smart. But here's the deal. I don't consume much water, and I don't consume Tommy Lauren. So my initial take was not to even mess with it. Yeah, uh, no, and I'll I tell mean, you I why I don't. Her. Because in being intellectually honest, and intellectually honest, endowed as a man, if Tommy Lauren looked like Rosie O'Donnell, nobody would pay any attention. Nobody would pay any attention. Right. But. But she, she's beautiful. She's pretty smoking. And so people are like, whoa, what does she have to say? Immediately. But here's number two. For the same reason I don't watch many sitcoms. Mm. I, I do watch from time to time. Charity and I will will binge watch on Netflix maybe once a year. We'll, we'll get in like a two or three day deal. But by and large, I don't watch sitcoms because sitcoms are written by 26-year-olds who don't have much knowledge of this world yet. And I know I'm coming up on 40. But even within that 14... Like, what has Tommy Lauren ever done? Outside, she, outside of being in front of a camera. Has she, has she managed any sort of payroll? She, does she have her own LLC? Has she, has she done anything to bear in this world other than to be like a nine on the scale... <sighs> And then to say <laughs> things that gaslight people. Okay, well, okay, so, look, first of all, Jay, I'm going to have to stop you with the lady thing, because you're being a tad misogynistic. Did you, did, whoa, <laughs> whoa, did you see the response she had today? I, I don't follow her. I don't consume her either. Well, guess what? She's there in, like, yoga pants and a yoga top. I know, she did holding, Playboy, right? No, no she, oh, come on. She no, did. No, she didn't. I'm pretty sure she did. You better look that up before you start right making now. claims like that here on the other side. But she's like packing a pistol in the front of her yoga pants, and she puts out this response to what happened to her. And it's all contrived. Again, 26-year-old raking us all over the coals, getting all the attention. And look, don't throw water at people, but everybody. She didn't. She interviewed with them. She interviewed. Mm -hmm. So they just, just read the magazine for the interviews. Yeah. No. So would Ro has Rosie O'Donnell done interviews with Playboy? <laughs> no. Uh, maybe you ought to Google that. So Gosh. I, I think it's crazy how everybody gets in these conundrums about this. I mean, again, she's 26, okay? And she says fiery things and she gets everybody worked up. I Here, here I've gotten sucked in. I've done a segment about it. <laughs> but it's craziness to me. I know that David Brooks, he's not very attractive, nor is George Will or, or Doris Kearns Goodwin, but they have some things to say that I think are worth listening to. 
all that, all this Tommy Lauren stuff is just craziness to me. And at, at the end of the day, she's making a killing off of this, just yeah. like she always has. Yeah. <laughs> she's just made a killing. Yeah. Yeah, she really, I mean, she I will really challenge, has. She's exploited I will that. challenge her to Trivial Pursuit or an ACT, an SAT, whatever she wants to go at. But it's just, some, if, she, if she didn't look the way she did, she wouldn't get the pass that she gets. And because she gets the pass that I she gets, did she just runs the whole thing. If you haven't climbed up to Enchanted Rock, drink a cold shiner down and look in box.